President Biden's plan to erase up to $20,000 in college debt for tens of millions of borrowers is drawing praise and criticism. Some welcome relief, but others say he should address the sky-high cost of tuition. Today is Thursday, August 25th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, a controversial new Japanese government campaign is urging young people to drink more alcohol to boost the economy. In Uvalde, Texas, the community is still grieving three months after the deadly shooting, and now it's responding to the firing of the school district's police chief. And singer-songwriter F.C. from Dorchester coming into their own through music. Everything is pink. latest pick for a local artist to watch coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Justice Department has until noon tomorrow to release a redacted version of the affidavit related to the FBI's recent search of former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home in Florida. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports the department filed the version under seal in federal court in Florida today. The Justice Department submitted its proposed redactions shortly before the court-imposed deadline of noon Eastern time. A DOJ spokesman confirmed the filing and says the department has no further comment. Last week, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt ordered the DOJ to suggest proposed redactions to the Mar-a-Lago affidavit. The department opposes making any of the document public because it says it could undermine its ongoing investigation. Media outlets have filed papers arguing for the affidavit's release, saying the case is of intense public interest. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The threat of floods continues to spread in parts of the southern U.S. and central Mississippi. The Rankin County Sheriff's Department posted Facebook videos showing deputies wading through knee-deep muddy waters this week. There were some accounts of officers carrying toddlers out of a flooded daycare center. The recovery from this week's floods is expected to be a long one in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas. That's especially true for low-income residents who couldn't afford insurance that would have helped pay for repairs to their homes. One faith-based group of volunteers has arrived with tools in hand. Art Brandenburg, a retired law enforcement officer, is at a home where he says an elderly couple lost everything in three feet of floodwaters. He describes seeing the reaction of survivors in other natural disasters as well. Just seeing people's expressions, their, their sense of hopelessness because their whole life has been turned upside down. Everything they own is gone. They have no place to live. They have to live with relatives or find some place. And we just try to give them a sense of hope that we're here to help them. Scientists say extreme weather conditions like those in the south will become more frequent as a result of climate change. NPR's Rebecca Hirsch reports new research is showing heat waves that are relatively rare today will be very frequent in the future. By the end of the century, many parts of the tropics will experience potentially dangerous heat every day, according to a new study by researchers at Harvard. That's true even if humans manage to limit overall global warming to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures, a goal that's barely within reach with current global climate policies. The study also finds that severe heat waves that are currently quite rare in the U.S. and elsewhere could happen every year by the end of the century. A separate analysis of this summer's record-breaking heat in Europe found that by 2035, such heat will be the norm. To avoid this type of deadly heat in the future, greenhouse gas emissions would need to decrease much more quickly than they are. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. 
The Dow closes up 322 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Transit advocates say the MBTA should go fare-free because of upcoming service reductions. The transit agency says it will reduce bus service on more than 40 routes because of staffing shortages. The changes begin this uh, next week. Stacy Thompson is executive director of the organization Livable Streets. You could be spending an extra hour, an extra two hours trying to get around the city, and that's lost wages, that's lost time with your family. It's having a real economic and livability impact for the people who live and work in Metro Boston. Additionally, T-service on several subway lines will remain on a reduced schedule through the fall. Massachusetts school systems are hiring bus drivers ahead of the new school year. Governor Charlie Baker calls the situation a challenge for many districts, but he says he expects they'll meet the challenge. He was asked today whether he'll call on the National Guard to drive school buses, as he did last year. We don't anticipate it this time. I mean, basic message I've been getting from people is um, we haven't heard that yet. Obviously, we've done it before. If we need to, we'll do it again. Baker says so far no district has asked for the National Guard's help this year, but he says the option's open. A child mentoring program called Friends of the Children Boston is getting the largest single gift in the program's history. It's almost $2.5 million, part of a $44 million gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott to chapters nationally. The program links young people uh, 12 or older with adult mentors. The Boston chapter expects the gift will double the number of children it serves and expand its footprint regionally. Boston's Berkeley College of Music has awarded Joni Mitchell an honorary doctorate. The school presented Mitchell with a degree this week during a ceremony in California. The 78-year-old Mitchell attended with friends and fellow musicians Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. She said words cannot describe the meaning of the degree. Over her career, Mitchell has earned 10 Grammys and the Kennedy Center honors. In the forecast, lots of sunshine this afternoon, light breezes into the evening. Clouds should move in overnight tonight, though. Temperatures about 68. Tomorrow, sunshine once again. We could reach 88 degrees, but there should be a breeze once again. 81 degrees now in the Boston area, kind of on the sticky side at 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden's plan to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt is drawing cheers. Also, plenty of booze. Borrowers are happy with the prospect of having up to $20,000 in college loans forgiven. Critics are questioning the fairness and the economic fallout of the president's plan. We are going to talk through some of the arguments for and against the plan with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you, Mary Louise. People are worked up about this. Lay out the gist for me of the arguments pro and con. Well, uh, obviously, if student debt is a big burden for a lot of people, and under this plan, 43 million people stand to have their loan payments reduced. 20 million of those would have their debts forgiven altogether. So if your payments are cut or eliminated, that means you have more money to spend elsewhere. Maybe you can buy that car you've been looking at, make a down payment on a house, or even put more money aside for your own kids' college education. (laughs) Uh, So this does have the potential to raise the living standards for tens of millions of people. 
On the other hand, critics say that additional spending could just pour more gasoline on the inflationary fires in an economy where businesses are already struggling to keep up with consumer demand. Now, we should note this is different than, say, those $1,200 relief checks that the government sent out to just about everyone last year. It's not as if people with student loans would suddenly have $20,000 transferred to their bank account. Uh, Instead, they would be relieved of making loan payments over the course of many years. And because that relief would be spread out, Ali Bustamante, who's with the left-leaning Roosevelt Institute, says this really wouldn't move the needle on inflation all that much. It's really a drop in the bucket when it comes to just the massive level of consumer spending that we have in our very service and consumer-driven economy. The White House also notes that the remaining student loan payments, uh, which have been on hold throughout the pandemic, are about to restart next year. And so that's going to offset some of the additional spending power and potential inflation pressures that would come with this loan forgiveness. Although we should note inflation is not the only issue that, that critics of this plan are raising. What else? No, another big complaint has to do with fairness. Uh, You are essentially transferring this debt from individuals and families to the federal government and ultimately to taxpayers, uh, and that includes people who, you know, maybe scrimped and saved to pay for their own college or uh, the majority of Americans who don't go to college. Uh, They might not mind subsidizing a newly minted social worker who earns, say, $25,000 a year, but they might bristle at underwriting debt relief for a business school graduate who's about to go off to Wall Street and earn six figures. The White House says 90% of this debt relief would go to people making under $75,000 a year, but the plan does allow for couples earning up to a quarter million dollars to get some debt relief, and that might rub some people the wrong way. Lower-income borrowers who qualified for Pell Grants in college are eligible for twice as much debt forgiveness as other borrowers, but Mark Goldwine, who's with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, still thinks this plan does does a lot to help people who might not really need the assistance. I still think a lot of this benefit is going to go to doctors, lawyers, MBAs, other graduates that have very high earnings potential and may even have very high earnings this year already. So that, that fairness issue is another big, big complaint. What about what all this might mean for the, the basic question of how much it costs to go to college in this country? Yeah, this is maybe the biggest beef that economists have with this plan. You know, for years, the cost of college education has soared much faster than overall inflation. And this debt forgiveness doesn't really do anything to fix that problem. In fact, it could make it even worse. Goldwine worries about the message that debt relief would send to, say, a high school student today who's thinking about where to go to college and how to pay for it. People are going to assume there's a likelihood that debt is canceled again and again. And if you assume there's a likelihood it's canceled, you're going to be more likely to take out more debt up front. That's going to give colleges more pricing power to raise tuition without pressure and to offer more low-value degrees. So Goldwine calls this just a, a Band-Aid on a, on a bigger problem. The old rule in economics, Mary Louise, is when the government subsidizes something, you tend to get more of it. In this case, that could include high tuition and college debt. We shall see if the rule holds in this case. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan appeared in court today. He faces legal cases that could result in his disqualification from politics. Khan still has a lot of popular support, but some warn that his tactics of demanding early elections and taking on the military may lead to conflict. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad. Dozens of men squeeze into the main gate of an Islamabad courthouse flanking their leader. They toss aside a metal detector, impeding their entry. They chant, 
Who will save Pakistan? Imran Khan, Imran Khan. Khan was at the courthouse to extend his protective bail after he was charged with terrorism offences over the weekend. This is only one of four legal cases Khan faces right now. Any of them could disqualify him from politics. Standing on the stairs of the courthouse, Khan tells his followers, that's the point. They're afraid of our power. We are winning by elections. We're holding historic public gatherings. They wanted to deliver a tactical knockout against me. A senior aide, Azam Swati, tells us who he thinks is trying to bring Khan down. There is a deep state. You understand the meaning of the deep state. In Pakistan, the deep state largely refers to the all-powerful military, an institution that many once saw as closely allied to Khan. No one could have predicted that Imran Khan, who came to power, riding on the shoulders of Pakistan's army, would have fallen out so disastrously. Omar Waraish is a political analyst and reporter who formerly covered Pakistan. He says last year, Khan fell out with the chief of army staff over the fate of a powerful intelligence chief who was widely seen as the architect of Khan's rise to power. By April, Khan was ousted as prime minister in a no-confidence vote in parliament. He's whipped up support since then at rallies by telling followers falsely that he was the victim of a US-orchestrated coup carried out by his corrupt rivals. He rails against the army's top brass for not backing him. His supporters amplify his claims on social media. Moraish again? What Imran Khan is seeking to do is really raising the stakes. He seems to perceive a schism within the ruling military establishment and seems to be seeking the support of some of the military against the army chief, which is very, very rare in Pakistani history. Beyond that support, Khan is also a force at the ballot box, where his party and allies have been winning by-elections across Pakistan since his ouster. Madiha Afzal is a fellow at the Brookings Institution. She says Pakistan has seen showdowns between civilian leaders and the military before, but nothing like this. I think we're in an unprecedented moment in terms of the kind of confrontation, the kind of potential turmoil it could generate. That is what we're watching for in the next few weeks. But that turmoil surrounding Khan is drawing attention away from pressing issues facing Pakistan right now, including extreme flooding this summer and an economy that needs a bailout. And even as Khan's followers are sure he'll save Pakistan, his critics fear he may destroy it. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. The government of Japan is trying to get young adults to drink more alcohol, this to boost tax revenues. Japan's alcohol consumption has been on the decline for decades. The new campaign arrives with some controversy, as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports. The campaign is dubbed Sake Viva. Sake is a rice wine. In Japanese, it also refers to alcohol in general. Sake Viva is a contest aimed at 20- and 30-somethings to suggest new ways to make and sell alcoholic beverages. Some critics have complained that the campaign could damage public health. Ryo Tanabe, who's in his 30s, likes to have the occasional drink, and he has no problem with the government encouraging others to do the same. But it's not so much what is being encouraged that puts him off, he says. It's who's doing the encouraging. The fact that the National Tax Agency is doing this makes it a different story. I feel something is wrong with it. 
I understand they need the tax revenue, but I don't think they have to go this far. Going out drinking with colleagues after work has long been common in Japan. But Tanabe says things are changing. Maybe this is just at my company, but bosses and workers don't get along. So young people don't want to go out for drinks, even if they are invited. Toshihiko Oki is a journalist who covers the alcohol industry. He notes that during the pandemic, local governments in Japan have asked restaurants not to serve alcohol. Japan's liquor tax revenue in fiscal year 2020 saw its biggest drop in more than three decades. Japan's COVID-19 countermeasures included lots of financial support to restaurants, which refrained from serving alcohol, but there was no support for sake brewers. Of course, the economy is struggling, and many Japanese just don't have extra income to spend on booze. But what Japanese are drinking, Oki says, also has to do with what they're eating. People in their 70s and 80s, our grandparents' generation, eat traditional Japanese food, but the post-baby boomer generations drink wine and beer. They go better with the foreign foods they're eating. And in Japan's competitive society, many young people see going out for a drink with colleagues after work not as a way to relieve stress, but as a way to pile it on. Socializing is seen as exhausting and a waste of mental energy. Japanese worry about how they're seen by other people, and they want to avoid getting drunk and blurting out anything that could trigger criticism. This leaves Oki little room for optimism about Japanese society. The population is aging and shrinking, and on top of that, he says, its young people are increasingly lonely, inward-looking, and isolated. Given the larger shifts, Oki says, government efforts to get people to drink and be merry are unlikely to succeed. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the podcast Who Killed Daphne seeks justice for a prominent Maltese journalist who was killed in a car bomb. That conversation is coming up next. Stocks were on the ascent today. The Dow rose nearly 1% or 323 points to finish at 33,292. S&P gained nearly 1.5% to close at 4199. The Nasdaq picked up more than 1.67% to end the session at 12,639. All the details coming up on Marketplace at 630. The National Labor Relations Board is accusing Starbucks of misconduct as it deals with unionization efforts by two 220 stores, including 14 in Massachusetts, that have voted to unionize. The board has filed a complaint saying the coffee chain is violating U.S. labor law by saying that only non-union stores are eligible for newly announced higher pay and benefits. Starbucks denies wrongdoing and says any new benefits at unionized stores must go through a collective bargaining process. It's 419. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases, committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
81 degrees now in the Boston area. Bright sunshine, light breezes through the next few hours. Overnight tonight should be overcast. Temperatures about 68 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sunshine's back once again. Temperatures up to about 88 degrees for a high. Should have some light breezes again. Then for Saturday, mostly sunny and cooler. About 81 degrees for a high. The off chance of an afternoon shower. Sunday, sunny and dry. Should top out at 80. 81 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In 2017, a car bomb exploded on the island country of Malta. It was a murder plot with one victim, investigative journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia. Her adult son Matthew, also a journalist, spoke to NPR about the day his mother died. I knew it was a car bomb straight away. I tried calling my mother on her phone, obviously it didn't ring. When I got there, there was just so much destruction and so much fire. A new six-part podcast called Who Killed Daphne follows the search for answers and for justice. It is written and hosted by Reuters reporter Stephen Gray. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me on your show. Before Daphne was killed, you knew her son, also an investigative journalist, and you knew Daphne by reputation. Tell us what made her such a towering figure. She was this fabulous journalist. She was operating on a very small island in the Mediterranean, but she'd she'd put it on the map in in Europe. But unfortunately for Malta, put it on the map as a place of very serious corruption where, you know, ministers were setting up, while an office was setting up companies in Panama, uh, they were selling off the country's passports, they were setting up money laundering operations. One issue after another she'd exposed, and it turned out she did most of it on her own. I I knew what she was doing, didn't know quite how alone she was. And that was the awful thing. You know, we didn't, we didn't get to support her when she was alive. But this podcast is us trying to set that right. Yeah, soon after she was killed, the police arrested three men who were accused of carrying out the hit. But then you say that authorities seemed uninterested in tracking down who might have ordered the killing. So you started looking at who her enemies might have been. And she had lots of them. Why was the list so long? Why did so many powerful people have it in for her? Well, it was partly her character. She wouldn't stop. And she unpicked the island. She was like a one-woman WikiLeaks, she's been called. And she was a woman in a very male-dominated society. And we knew she was doing this stuff, but he didn't realize quite how much danger she was in. So when you realize that the police appeared uninterested in working their way up the chain of command, that in fact somebody was leaking to the suspects from the investigation, when you realized how many powerful enemies Daphne had, what hope did you think you had of actually solving this mystery? Well, I, and I should say I'm not trying maligning everybody in the, in the police. There were people there trying to do it to, to solve this one, 
but it looked like they needed some help. So we didn't think that we would solve anything. You know, what we tried to do, you know, as journalists, we continue the work of other journalists. And that's what we wanted to do here. And then it became clear that though the police were following a chain of evidence from the bomb scene, they were not interested in following the people she wrote about, in investigating the, the matters that she was looking at, and actually taking up her the puzzles that she was trying to solve. And there was a local reporter called Jacob Borg, and we sat down and thought, well, what was it? What was the trail that she was on that she hadn't quite solved? Could that be the, the clue? Could that point to the killer? Honestly, there was a lot of obviously luck involved because I've been doing, I've been a journalist nearly 30 years and this is the first time, you know, we actually succeeded. It's your first time solving a murder, huh? Well, quite, yeah. I mean, I was just gobsmacked, you know, but we did identify, as you'll hear, the person identified as the mastermind who who is now accused, officially charged, and a trial is, is, is happening. It is a dramatic uh, narrative. It has the pacing of a thriller. I mean... There is a scene before dawn at a harbor with a boat that's almost escaping that could really come right out of an action movie. It was then the captain noticed something. Through the side window of the bridge, a blue light flashing in the dark. Out of the gloom, a motorboat came into view, speeding across the waves. It was heading straight for him. Then he saw two more patrol boats closing in from each side. Six soldiers stormed aboard, Marines from the Maltese Armed Forces. Logan opened his mouth to ask what was going on. Then he saw a red laser sight on his chest. Yeah, some of these scenes, they write themselves. It, it, was, it was a dramatic moment when we lived it as well. You know, at that end, at the end scene, I don't know if you can feel the, the excitement that we went through because it's one of those moments when the, the whole country was was in a state almost of revolution. People were out on the streets. You knew something was going to happen. Uh, it was one of those moments you, you, you went to bed about two in the morning, you woke up at six and you didn't even feel tired because you were so excited about what the next day would bring. This actually made international news. I mean, people in the street in Malta chanting mafia, mafia, accusing the government of corruption, thousands of people. It must have been totally surreal to know that you played some role in that. Absolutely. I've never lived through anything quite like that. And, you know, it is a compelling story, tinged, though, by the fact that with that sadness of the, that it's real, you know, it's not fiction, it really is real. And, you know, the struggle for justice does still continue in that case and in, obviously in the case of many others as well. Another plot point that I think is not a spoiler because it was widely reported, including on NPR, is that the Prime Minister Joseph Muscat ultimately had to resign, along with other top government ministers. And the way Muscat described it to you, he says his worst offense was trusting the people around him who turned out to be corrupt. He portrays himself as innocent, if naive. Do you believe that? He may say that, and I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you must have an opinion, even if it's one you don't feel comfortable sharing. Well, that's right. But, you know, all I can say is there remain some loose ends among those who leak this information about this investigation, how high it went. If not the murder, perhaps the cover up that uh, is still out there. So it's not a clean cut ending, but it's still satisfying in many ways if it does bring bring justice. But 
you know, there's still more to come. You are now part of a consortium called Forbidden Stories, and the group's slogan is killing the journalist won't kill the story. Can you tell us about the organization's mission? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a fabulous idea. Uh, Laurent Richard, a Paris journalist who is the founder of it, he spent about a year thinking about it. What can we do to to help to to keep alive the memories of all these journalists in general who are getting killed all the time? And so he set up this outfit, which has united so many journalists around the world, not just people who've been killed, but also those imprisoned who also can't continue their work. And systematically, uh, in Mexico, other places in South America, in Asia, lots of projects have come together, which Forbidden Stories is is coordinating. And it, it's, a, it's a really smashing idea, which I'm, I'm very proud to have been part of. I feel torn between a sense of satisfaction that a group like this exists and a sense of dread that there is enough work for a group like this to do. Absolutely. And you know, you can't, you can't dip into every case. You can't intervene everywhere. Hopefully, in most cases, the police will do their job. But we show that if there's going to be a cover-up that will intervene, you know, there's got to be a way that we create a disincentive. You're likely as not, things will get worse for you if you try and kill the messenger. Reuters reporter Stephen Gray is the writer and host of the podcast, Who Killed Daphne? Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on, and I hope everybody enjoys this podcast. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Pretty nice today, if you don't mind the heat and humidity. Should have clouds moving in tonight, right about 68 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine again, temperatures creeping up toward 90. Some light breezes again, mercifully. The weekend is looking pretty beautiful. Sunny on Saturday and Sunday, just the chance of an isolated shower on Saturday afternoon. Should be comfortable over the weekend, right about 80 degrees tops. Tonight at Fenway Park, the Sox get one more chance to pull out a win over the Blue Jays. Rookie Cutter Crawford throws the first pitch at 7-10 tonight. The Sox lost their first two games to the Jays. 81 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 4:30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. I'm Christopher Leiden. Next time on Open Source, Andres Nelson's of the Boston Symphony and Dmitry Shostakovich, the tortured saint of Stalin's Russia, are riding a wave together. A streak of Grammy recordings and justice at last for a genius composer played as often now as Beethoven and Mahler. Shostakovich's second life next on Open Source. Tonight at 9 and Sunday at 2. Only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden spoke with Ukraine's president as its war with Russia continues to escalate following a Russian rocket attack yesterday on a train station in central Ukraine that killed 22 people. It happened on the same day Ukraine observed its independence from the former Soviet Union, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre says the latest American aid package will allow Ukraine to acquire air defense and artillery systems to counter Russian aggression. The president reiterated the United States support for Ukraine as they defend themselves from Russian aggression, including yesterday's announcement of nearly $3 billion uh, in weapons and equipment. 
She says President Biden also expressed concern about continued fighting around the Russian-controlled nuclear power plant. In Oklahoma, another abortion law has gone into effect since the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. From member station KGOU, Catherine Sweeney reports. Earlier this year, Oklahoma lawmakers passed a bill that criminalized abortions. It went into effect this week. Any healthcare provider who performs an abortion in the state can be prosecuted for a felony, punishable by up to a decade in prison and $100,000 in fines. Oklahoma now has two bans on the procedure in place. Another one to affect this spring, it mirrors the Texas law adopted in 2021, and it allows Oklahomans to sue anyone who performs or facilitates an abortion for civil damages up to $10,000. Abortion rights advocates are mulling their options, which include a 2024 ballot initiative. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Sweeney in Oklahoma City. On Wall Street, stocks finished higher across the board, clawing back some of the recent losses. The Dow gained uh, 322 points, up nearly 1%. This is NPR. U.S. Senator Marsha Blackburn has landed in Taiwan. Her visit is the third government trip by an official in August alone. It's part of a coordinated show of support for Taiwan to counter China's military intimidation. NPR's Emily Fang has more. Tennessee Republican Marsha Blackburn sits on the Senate Armed Services Committee. Her visit comes after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi landed in Taiwan earlier this month, setting off what continues to be the most fraught military tensions between China and Taiwan since the mid-1990s. China continues to send naval ships and fighter jets to buzz Taiwan each day and is conducting military drills to simulate a blockade. The U.S. says sending officials to Taiwan does not have to change its relationship with China. Local media report that former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo will also be visiting Taiwan again in late September as a keynote speaker in a business conference. Emily Fang, NPR News. Starbucks is accused of violating U.S. labor laws by withholding pay raises and other benefits from stores that have voted to unionize. The National Labor Relations Board filed a complaint today in Seattle, where the coffee chain is headquartered. Back in May, Starbucks offered $200 million in extra pay and benefits to non-union stores. The company says those benefits must be subject to bargaining at unionized stores. More than 220 Starbucks stores have voted to unionize since late last year. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker says the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, is proof that more should be done to secure schools. He said today he plans to ask lawmakers for more money to pay for school safety initiatives. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor will file a supplemental budget that includes $40 million to beef up school security, including grants for communications upgrades, a pilot tip line to report potential threats, and ongoing emergency response training for school officials. He says that while Massachusetts gun laws have helped keep classrooms safe, there's more that can be done. It's important to be prepared and as school starts up again to know what resources are being made available and no child should fear going to school in the morning or feel uncertainty over how safe their building or their classroom is. Public safety officials say they will continue to work directly with school districts to develop and maintain multi-hazard evacuation plans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
The MBTA is extending its reduced levels of service into the fall. The T says it will continue to run limited orange line trains even after the line reopens from its 30-day shutdown. The red and blue lines will also stick to a reduced schedule. Roughly 40 bus routes face new service cuts starting this weekend. The T says a lack of staff is driving the disruptions. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says President Biden's student debt forgiveness places a focus on low-income families. The plan gives $10,000 in federal loan forgiveness to certain borrowers. Those who receive an income-based Pell Grant in college are eligible for $20,000 in relief. Warren says more than half the relief will go to Pell Grant recipients. Remember that Pell Grants are given 95% of the families uh, have incomes less than $60,000. So there's a big push in this to get help to the people who need it most. Governor Baker says the president's plan is unfair to those who paid for their debts or who paid for career training programs. Many voters are still undecided as to who they'll be voting for in the state primary that is less than two weeks away. A poll released today by the Conservative Fiscal Alliance Foundation finds voters in both parties still haven't made up their minds. On the Republican ticket for governor, about one-third of voters have not decided. On the Democratic side, for attorney general, 49 percent they haven't decided. And for auditor, the undecided number was at 75 percent. The poll surveyed 750 primary voters and has a margin of error of 4.1 percent. It's 436. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. In the forecast, pretty nice out there. We should have overcast skies tonight, though. Temperature's about 68 degrees. And for tomorrow, sun's back. Temperature's creeping toward 90 degrees. Some light breezes again tomorrow. Then the weekend's looking pretty nice. Saturday and Sunday, sunshine both days. The off chance of a shower Saturday afternoon should have highs over the weekend just about 80 degrees. 81 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at MattressFirm.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In these coming days, many kids and educators will return to public school classrooms for the first time since the deadly shooting at Robb Elementary School, the shooting that left 19 children and two teachers dead. And in Uvalde, the school year will begin without one leader who's been widely criticized for the police response to the shooting. Well, our co-host, Juana Summers, is part of a team reporting in Uvalde all this week on how families are navigating this moment. Hey, Juana. Hey there. So I was thinking, it's incredibly, it's been three months since the shooting in May at Robb Elementary School. What does it feel like in that town right now? 
Well, it's clearly a community that's still grieving. Restaurants and shops still have Uvalde's strong signs on display. And there are these beautiful murals. They are portraits of the victims, and they're still being painted on the sides of downtown buildings. And the new school year is about to start. But as city manager Vince DiPiazza told us when we spoke yesterday, it's only been three months, and that is just not a long time. No. And and you mentioned the families, of course, still have questions. Uh, investigators still have a ton of questions trying to figure out what happened with the police response that day. Where do those questions stand? Well, families tell us that they want accountability and more clarity about why it took so long for law enforcement to respond. And as you mentioned, there are investigations under the response, multiple investigations. Parents also say they want to know more about how the school district plans to improve security. And last night, there was a big development. The school board voted unanimously to fire school district police chief Pete Arredondo. There'd been a lot of pressure on the school board to terminate him. He's been criticized for not ordering officers to act sooner. Now, his lawyer did dispute that in a 17-page statement ahead of the meeting, but since that vote happened, we have not heard any further response from either Arredondo or his attorney. That must have been some school board meeting. Was it open to the public? Were you all there? It was open to the public. There was a large presence of media and a lot of family members of these victims and survivors in that room. And it was, frankly, very emotional. As the board met in private session out of view for about 90 minutes, these parents and these family members, they took up the microphone and they started sharing stories about the people they've lost. And they also called for action. After the meeting was over and the vote had been held, our producer Janaki Mathas spoke with Barbara Miller, who is the grand aunt of Miranda Mathis, one of the students who was killed. Well, it's a step in the right direction to getting things better fixed for the school system, their safety, their protection, because you can't have someone that can't do the job. And Mary Louise, we've also been speaking to the family of Noah Arona. He was shot but survived the shooting. And after the meeting ended, we ran into his mother, Jessica, and she told us she was shocked that Arredondo had been fired because it had taken so long for anything to happen. And so I asked her what she wants to happen next. Everyone that was there on May 24th at the Rob shooting should be replaced. I, I don't see that, you know, them have, coming back for this school year would put anybody at ease. You can just hear so much pain still there. Tell me um, what other stories you have planned, who else you're talking to these coming days. Families here are just facing impossible choices. Some kids are still too scared to go back inside a classroom, and some parents do not trust the school district to keep their kids safe. Yuri DeLuna has two sons, Emmanuel and Eloyd, and she's homeschooling both of them this year. Eloyd used to go to Robb Elementary, though he was not a student there when the shooting happened. And when we were at their home, Yuri pointed us to the navy blue air mattress that sits near her front door. He's scared of windows, so his bed's high, so he won't sleep in his room. He thinks he'll get shot at. You'll hear more from her family and others about their worries, but also their hopes for this coming school year. That's our co-host, Juana Summers, in Uvalde, Texas. Thank you so much for sharing this and and all the reporting y'all are going to bring us from this week. Thank you. The fall of Roe versus Wade has reshaped the political landscape, and that's especially true in Kansas, where an anti-abortion ballot measure lost in a landslide earlier this month. As Frank Morris of member station KCUR reports, an embattled Democratic congresswoman running for re-election is taking the abortion fight to her Republican challenger. 
There's only one Democrat in the Kansas congressional delegation, Representative Sharice Davids. And with redistricting this year, her seat got a lot tougher to defend. And it'll show you a little map. But Davids has lots of help from people like Nancy Pence, here training volunteers to campaign door-to-door in a post-Roe world. We're in uncharted ground now, and I think that astute politicians look at this and say, this is something I should pay attention to. It'd be hard to miss the political upheaval in Kansas. Earlier this month, voters in this conservative state crushed a proposed state constitutional amendment that would have paved the way for a ban on abortion. It was a massive upset, touching off tearful celebrations among activists accustomed to losing elections. The amendment failed 59 to 41 percent in the best-attended primary election in state history. A partial recount only confirmed the outcome. When 50 years of precedent protecting our rights was overturned and removed, people got scared, they got anxious, lives were upended, and and people got angry. Sharice Davids has hitched her campaign to that anger, staging press conferences and producing ads, reminding voters that her opponent, former Kansas Republican Party chairwoman Amanda Adkins, was on the losing side of the abortion amendment vote. Our friends and neighbors rejected her extremist politics. Now we can stop Amanda Atkins from bringing her anti-choice agenda to Congress. Atkins' campaign didn't respond to calls and emails requesting an interview for this story. Atkins has been hammering Davids on inflation and support for Joe Biden. Here's part of her new radio ad. Radical Biden and David's policies are devastating American families and businesses. Instead of fighting for us, Sharice Davids blindly votes with Joe Biden. Atkins says that she believes that life begins at conception. But it's not something she's advertising. So this is a major reversal. A Kansas Democrat going after a Kansas Republican on the issue of abortion. Always an issue for the right. Always, always, always. But Stephanie Sharp, a political consultant and former Republican Kansas lawmaker, says the abortion ballot issue uncovered a disconnect. It turns out the Kansas electorate has more nuanced views on abortion than most successful Republican lawmakers here do. And Sharp says the massive primary turnout exposed a potential voting block for a candidate like David's trying to activate middle-of-the-road voters. There's a segment of the population that never, ever votes in primaries. So you take the Democrats and unaffiliateds that voted in this primary, then you take Republicans who voted in this primary but have never voted in a primary before. Those are your moderates. You know, that's your margin of victory easily. And this isn't just about Kansas. Polls show that most Americans say they disapprove of the Supreme Court decision overthrowing Roe. And other vulnerable Democratic congresswomen in Iowa, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Virginia are leaning in to the abortion rights issue this year. With surging inflation, mass shootings, and climate disasters, it's not clear how much difference one issue might make. But candidates like Sharice Davids are hoping that a new emphasis on abortion rights will help get their voters to the polls come November. For NPR News, I'm Frank Morris in Kansas City. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Popular musicians have been singing about teen angst since the advent of rock and roll. But the Boston singer-songwriter F.C. 
offers a fresh take on the trend, writing about adolescence with the insight that comes with age. I started changing before everyone else. so fast, didn't even know myself. FC, and that's E-P-H-S-E-E, is a 22-year-old Northeastern University student from Dorchester. Their songs draw on being black and non-binary. Many of their lyrics describe feeling like an outsider in a way people might relate to. FC is WBUR critic Amelia Mason's newest pick for a series on rising local musicians to watch, Sound On. It's always a good sign when I listen through an album and then immediately play it again. That's what happened when I listened to FC's EP, Girlhood. The songs are about feeling insecure as a teen, but the music is very polished and self-assured. It really captures that dreamy, innocent time in your life from the perspective of someone who's older and a little wiser. The first song on the EP is called The Pill, and it's one of those songs that just makes you sit up straight and listen from its very first lines. I was okay in high school, but that all changed when I took the pill. Wanted to be a grown-up, but all it did was make me shrill. I was a theater kid, but I just played strippers and drama queens. FC says in high school, they played lead roles in musicals. And because their body developed early and they had a powerful voice, they often played very adult roles. In retrospect, they feel they were typecast. It wasn't until afterwards when I realized, like, oh, like, this gave me, like, body image issues and I can't see myself outside of this hypersexualized, you know, role now. And, F says, they were just perceived differently from other kids because they were one of only a few black students at a predominantly white private high school. They felt like black kids were not really seen by their peers as dating material. So when F was young, they really yearned for love. And their reflections on that inspired the song, Did I? Did I really want to be in love? Or did I just feel like I had to prove myself in that way growing up? FC grew up in Dorchester, and their given name is Felicia Cabral. Their parents are Cape Verdean, and F says that as a child of immigrants, they felt a lot of pressure to excel in school. But they were also interested in music from a very early age, learning to sing first in school choir, and then honing their voice in high school musicals and college a cappella. They recalled when they wrote their first song at 10 years old and performed it at summer camp. So the verse went... There's too many things inside my head. Too many things that have been said. You might be able to tell from this song that F was a natural musician and had a really firm grasp of pop song structure at a very young age. 
And then the chorus, I have unknown pain, I have unknown strength, I can beat you down, beat you to the ground. I got the chance to observe them in a recording studio at Northeastern, working on an idea for a song. Okay, I'll get back in there and do another take. The inspiration was early aughts pop punk. F would lay down a track, then hop back in the engineering booth, listen, say, I want to add a harmony. Or, let's double those vocals. There's about 80,000 causes to care about and nothing's getting done. It was amazing to watch them work. (laughs) This is a pivotal moment for FC. They're about to graduate from Northeastern with a degree in music industry and communications. A lot has changed for them in college. They came out as non-binary. They put out their first EP almost a year ago, and they're working on new music now, which they're releasing as singles. They told me they're more comfortable in their skin than they used to be. And I think that translates into music that's becoming more playful and free. If you'd like to see photos and Amelia's full write-up on FC, go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering online undergraduate degree completion in interdisciplinary studies. Build off previously completed college credits and earn your bachelor's degree in as few as 30 months. Learn more at bu.edu met. And Worcester Cultural Coalition. The Worcester Caribbean American Carnival takes place August 28th at Worcester's Institute Park. More at WorcesterCulture.org. Coming up on WBUR, the MBTA Riders Lament. In the forecast, lots of sunshine, light breezes into the evening hours. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies down about to 68 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine once again could reach 88. At least it should be breezy again tomorrow. The weekend's looking mighty fine. Saturday, mostly sunny and cooler, 81 for a high, with the off chance of an afternoon shower. Sunday, sunny and dry, could top out at about 80 degrees. Tonight at Fenway Park, the Sox get one more chance to pull out a win over the Blue Jays. Rookie Cutter Crawford throws the first pitch at 7-10. Kevin Gossman pitches for Toronto. The Red Sox lost their first two games to the Jays. 81 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.54. Her name is Daria Dukina, less well-known than her father, but quite an important figure in the Russian media and propaganda landscape to promote Russian imperialism and anti-Americanism that her father laid out. And so when the invasion of Ukraine happened, this was her moment as well. I'm Natalie Kitroev. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A partial shutdown of the subway system in Boston is challenging commuters. The second busiest line on the T, as it's called, has stopped running. The orange line's closed for repairs after a series of accidents. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, that's created confusion and delays. Boston loves to boast about all its firsts, the nation's first public park, first lighthouse, and first subway system built in the late 1800s. But age is not always an asset. Since I was a kid, they're still using I'm 50 years old, they're still using the same orange line. That's why we're in this mess. Mark Rapucci is one of many commuters frustrated by long-deferred updates of Boston's aging transit system. They just got a bunch of banana heads running the transportation. They don't know what they're doing. Safety concerns came to a head recently after a spate of crashes and accidents, two of them fatal. Last month, riders had to jump from a train that caught fire on a bridge. One jumped into the river below. It's psychologically damaging because you think, is this the day that something's going to happen because it's happening so often? Commuter Robert Thomas says he had his own scare when two trains collided last year. I almost got hit by that train. I jumped out the way for that crash. The Federal Transit Administration is now investigating T-safety. T-officials say the shutdown is enabling them to replace tracks and upgrade systems to improve safety ASAP instead of over five years of nights and weekends, an unprecedented move that Mayor Michelle Wu had been calling for. We can no longer tolerate just trying to fix things up here or there. It is time to talk about just ripping the Band-Aid off and taking drastic action. But the improvements come at a price. Oh my God, I'm not going to get to the appointment. On board one of the shuttle buses running in lieu of the Orange Line, Princess Alowu was running late despite allowing four hours for a trip that should take one. Newly hired shuttle bus drivers also needed direction this week. Go ahead, down. No, no, go, go. Some as confused as commuters like Robert Thomas. They shut the green line down so I would have to get on the 66 to the orange line. But now the orange line shut down, so now I have to come to the shuttle bus, and then I get to the shuttle bus, and it takes me to another shuttle bus. I'm like, wait, what? People need to just keep their cool. Kama Sadler was one of many urging patience and calm. Seth Brown agrees the inconvenience is short-term pain for long-term gain. In order to progress, we should be willing to roll with the punches. The real test of the shuttle system will come as summer ends and streets and trains fill back up. Officials say staffing shortages require service reductions through the fall and some are balking at what they call a disproportionate impact of it all on communities of color. T officials say the good news is the work is on track to finish on time, though many in Boston remain skeptical. There's no way this is going to be over by September 19th. If this is over by Christmas, I'll eat my hat. Many Bostonians are hoping humor helps them through their transit travails. From this performance at a tea station to Civil War-style dispatches from the front, tweeted by commuter Brian Estabrook. I fear we have not seen a disaster of this magnitude since Fredericksburg. His latest came after two construction vehicles enlisted to prevent future train derailments actually derailed themselves. Father, our daring campaign commences, and with it, setbacks. Derailments have already reared their ugly head. Faith in the T's command is waning, Esterbrook says. He'd desert the T if he could, but he needs it to get to work. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston.
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. More at nature.org solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at progressivecommercial.com. This is 90.9 WBUR, still 81 degrees in the Boston area. Look for clouds moving in tonight, down to about 68 degrees. For tomorrow, bright sunshine reaching 88 degrees, a light breeze once again. Then sunshine's back for the weekend, should be cooler, hovering around 80. The Taliban were responsible for many attacks throughout Afghanistan in years past. Now that they're in power, the Taliban face a challenge from the Islamic State. The Taliban claim that they have brought security to Afghanistan and ISIS continued attacks really undercut that Taliban narrative. That story tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. New abortion restrictions are taking effect in three states. They either impose earlier gestational bans or they enhance criminal and civil penalties. Tennessee and Idaho are moving to a near total prohibition on abortion. Texas is making it a felony to provide an abortion or attempt to. It's Thursday, August 25th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the new film Katrina Babies explores the trauma children and their families endured when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. Parents are reacting to the expiration of a program that provided free school meals to all students during the pandemic. I would love it if the government would reevaluate taking this away from our schools. It was one less thing for parents to worry about. And later, how punk musician Blondie became a star. It's 501. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is returning to the campaign trail this evening with a rally outside Washington, D.C. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the event in Maryland comes as Democrats try to increase momentum ahead of the upcoming midterm election. Congressional Democrats have seen their political hopes rebound in recent weeks after a spate of legislative victories, including President Biden's newly passed tax and climate change package. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says Biden's speech tonight will lay out the choice before Americans. He'll highlight how he and congressional Democrats have delivered results for working families, creating nearly 10 million jobs and record low unemployment, lowering health care costs. Biden is also expected to highlight additional steps to protect abortion rights and efforts to preserve Social Security and Medicare. 
Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A U.S. magistrate judge now says a redacted version of the sealed affidavit the FBI relied upon when agents searched former President Donald Trump's Florida residence should be released to the public by noon tomorrow. It's expected the affidavit will lay out a detailed basis for the search. Agents seized a number of documents from Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, some labeled classified. Trump had asked a different judge to halt the FBI's review of the documents and appoint a special master to ensure they are not covered by executive privilege. Globally, the number of monkeypox cases has fallen by 21 percent, but as NPR's Ari Daniel reports, intense transmission continues in the Americas. The World Health Organization says that in Europe, there are signs that the outbreak is slowing due to changes in behavior and immunization efforts. But elsewhere, especially in Latin America, the situation is more concerning. Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus is director general of the WHO. Insufficient awareness or public health measures are combining with a lack of access to vaccines to fund the flames of the outbreak. There are now more than 41,000 cases in 96 countries, with the United States reporting the largest number of confirmed monkeypox cases, followed by Spain, Brazil, and then Germany. Ari Daniel, NPR News. New numbers on the U.S. economy. Scott Horsley reports. Updated figures from the Commerce Department show the economy shrank less in April, May, and June than initially reported last month. GDP declined at an annual rate of six-tenths of one percent in the second quarter. The original estimate showed the economy contracting at a rate of nine-tenths of a percent. The revised figures show that consumer spending and inventory investment were higher than initially reported, while investment in housing was lower. New claims for unemployment benefits dropped again last week in another sign of a tight job market. Just 243,000 people filed new applications for jobless aid. Applications from the previous week were also revised down. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker says the MBTA's approach to staffing likely needs to change. The transit agency is struggling to recruit new workers and retain current employees. That challenge is driving the extended service reductions across T subway lines and new reductions on some bus lines. According to Baker, it's part of a national trend. The traditional approach to all this stuff, uh, given the changing dynamic associated with hiring in the transit and transportation space generally, um, is probably not going to be enough. Baker and leaders at the T have indicated they're looking at reworking the agency's staffing process. A woman from Suffolk County has contracted the West Nile virus. According to the Department of Public Health, the woman in her 70s is the first person in the state to be diagnosed this year with a mosquito-borne illness. There were 11 cases in the state last year. Most cases result in no symptoms. Severe illness is rare. Officials say the ongoing drought should keep the case counts low because the mosquitoes that carry the virus lay their eggs in water, but late summer presents the highest risk of infection of the entire year. The drought is considered extreme for nearly 40 percent of Massachusetts. That's according to the U.S. Drought Monitor's latest report. It uses data collected through Tuesday morning. That means it doesn't reflect all the rain that fell through the day on Tuesday. 96% of the state is considered to be in severe or extreme drought. That's up about 2% from the week prior. And the Breakheart Reservation in Saugus remains closed because of wildfires burning in it. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says the park will remain closed until further notice. The department says the recent rains were not enough to eliminate the fire hazard in the state because of the drought. The state has banned campfires and charcoal grills in state parks, but portable gas grills are allowed. 
in the forecast. Dry overnight tonight, temperatures about 68 degrees, lots of clouds around. And for tomorrow, a pretty nice day again. Sunshine with high temperatures creeping toward 90 degrees. 79 degrees now in Boston at 506. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Today, trigger laws will tighten abortion restrictions in three states that already have abortion bans in place. Tennessee and Idaho will move from banning the procedure after about six weeks to near-total prohibitions. Texas will make it a felony to provide or attempt to provide an abortion with a possible punishment of life in prison. In all, at least 14 states now have severe restrictions on abortion. UC Davis Law Professor Mary Ziegler is here to help us understand this patchwork of restrictions. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. All right, as we mentioned, these three states already had some kind of abortion ban in place, and now these trigger laws are going to add to those restrictions. So how much is this practically going to change things for people who might want to end a pregnancy in Tennessee, Idaho, and Texas? Well, in a big picture sense, there's already virtually very little access to abortion in these states. On the other hand, there have been clinics that have been open that will close. And many of these laws actually are more restrictive in the sense that they either impose earlier gestational bans or they enhance criminal and civil penalties, which will have some kind of effect on some people seeking abortion early in pregnancy, and it also have an effect on doctors performing emergency care um, that's sort of adjacent to abortion, who may be more affected or at least more concerned about these enhanced penalties that some of the trigger laws prescribe. In Texas, the advanced penalties include life in prison and a $100,000 fine. Uh, How out of step with the rest of the country is that, or is that pretty consistent with what we're seeing in other states? Well, we've seen the country, I think, kind of roughly divided in the sense that there there are a number of states, um, roughly half, that have some kind of ban that's kicking in in the rest of the country that either has later gestational limits in places, for example, like Florida, or places that are actually moving in the other direction and guaranteeing access to abortion or protecting providers and others from criminal or civil consequences from out of state. So I, I think this is a situation where the country is sort of dividing into conventional kind of blue and red pockets on the one hand, but then when you look deeper at what actually voters seem to prefer, the picture is much more complicated. And you see a lot of states that fall somewhere in the middle uh, where voters would probably prefer something very different from the kind of bans we're seeing. Do these new restrictions in Tennessee, Idaho, and Texas have exceptions uh, to save the life of the mother or in cases of rape or incest? Uh, The Texas law prohibits abortion except in life-threatening. It essentially has exceptions for life and severe health conditions. Tennessee's is similar, um, other than it it kind of is unusual in the sense that it it actually forces a doctor who's being prosecuted for abortion to prove that abortion was life-saving. Idaho's law also lacks exceptions, and it's worth emphasizing that other than this kind of life exception that's extremely narrow and being challenged by the Biden administration, and the Idaho GOP going forward has staked out the position that there should be no exceptions whatsoever, but that's, that's not what we're seeing in the current trigger law. 
We've also seen some movement in the opposite direction. Voters in Kansas earlier this month defeated a ballot measure that would have stripped abortion protections from the Constitution. In Nebraska, abortion rights opponents did not have enough votes to pass a ban. How do you put those moves into context with the states we've been talking about that are ratcheting up penalties and restrictions? Well, I think there there's sometimes a disconnect between partisan politics and how voters feel directly about abortion. Um, we don't have perfect polling on this, but the best polling we have according to the New York Times upshot, would suggest that maybe in about 16 states, a majority of voters would actually want something like a ban on abortion, including uh, many of the ones that are putting bans into effect at the moment, including, for example, Tennessee. But in other states, uh, it's, it simply seems to be the case that voters have stronger preferences for Republican lawmakers than they have antipathy to abortion bans. But uh, that means, one, that when you go directly to voters, you may get a different answer, as we saw in Kansas. And two, that there are Republicans in some states who have some trepidation about bans when they know that voters in their states might not want them, uh, which is what I think you see in Nebraska. By contrast, in, in some of these states with trigger laws, Republicans there, I think, are secure enough in the partisan lean of their states that they don't think they're going to pay a price, even in, in some cases where voters may not actually prefer a ban, all things being equal. Since the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade in the Dobbs decision, we have seen a series of states with trigger laws take effect, overcome court challenges. Um, are we pretty much at the end of the line now? Is that most of them? That is most of them. We're waiting again to see if how Idaho's medical emergency exception will come into play. Um, if, if the courts are going to side with the Biden administration and say that it's too narrow. We're also waiting to see if North Dakota's trigger law will go into effect. We're waiting on a state judge in that state to weigh in on a legal challenge. And of course, it's worth emphasizing that, you know, trigger laws aren't the end of the road here. Some states are in special session on abortion. Other states are poised to address abortion when they resume regular legislative seasons and are considering a, a broad array of other measures, including things addressing um, interstate travel, abortion medication. So trigger laws are really just the first wave of what we're likely to see, not the end. That's Mary Ziegler, Martin Luther King Professor of Law at UC Davis. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Today, California officials approved a plan to phase out the sale of new gasoline-powered cars by 2035. California is the largest auto market in the U.S. It could set the standard for other states to follow. Kevin Stark with member station KQED is here with details. Hey, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us. How big of a deal is this move? Oh, it's a huge deal. It's hard to overstate it. Only brand new electric cars will be rolling off the lots in California in a little more than a decade. This could be the end. This could be the beginning of the end of the tailpipe. And obviously, this is a major action to fight climate change. The state estimates it will cut carbon emissions from cars and trucks in half by 2040. That's the equivalent of not burning more than 900 million barrels of oil. And this will just take a whack at the state's largest source of emissions, which is transportation. California has really struggled to decarbonize that sector. State officials are arguing that this will move the auto market across the country. Here's Governor Gavin Newsom's climate advisor, Lauren Sanchez. It's also a game changer for the states that follow California's regulations and the countless countries and automakers around the world that have adopted similar goals. Look, California represents a tenth of the nation's car sales. That's a large piece of the pie. And more than a dozen other states already follow California's clean car rules. Many of those states will likely sign on to this. In fact, the state of Washington already announced that it will. Hmm. All right, let's dig into the weeds. How is California going to do this? 
Yes, well, we've known about the goalpost for about two years since Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order banning the sale of gasoline-powered cars. For the past couple of years, air regulators have been hashing out the details of how to get there. You know, and I, th- I just think these targets are really aggressive. The first interim target is 35% EV sales by 2026. That jumps up to 68% by the end of the decade. For comparison, right now, electric vehicles are about 16% of new sales in California. This rule also tightens restrictions on gas-powered cars in the meantime. So the gas cars that Californians are going to buy over the next decade are going to be cleaner. So just to be totally clear, because as you note, these targets are aggressive. They, they are not optional, right? These are these are mandates. Absolutely. You know, look, Ford, GM, most of the major car makers have released electric vehicle commitments. You know, they plan to invest billions over the next few years. You want an electric F-150 truck, you know, a Mustang, a Volkswagen bus, those are available now or they will be soon. What's important here is that these regulations on the car make are these are regulations on the car makers and the manufacturers, and the targets are measured against the number of cars that they deliver to the dealerships. Leanne Randolph is the state's top air regulator, and she made this crystal clear. This is a legally binding enforceable requirement. Most of the automakers who have set their targets have a lot of caveats about, well, if this happens or that happens. This is an actual legally enforceable requirement. Okay, so let's say the car makers aren't hitting their targets. California is going to levy a financial penalty against them for noncompliance. That's $20,000 per car each year that they're short. Wow, that's a big penalty. Um, Speaking of big price tags, electric vehicles are not cheap. Um, So where does that leave the question of whether people in California will be able to afford electric vehicles? Yeah, I think this is really important. You know, not everyone can buy a brand new car. Generally, the average cost of a new electric vehicle right now is north of $60,000. That's in line, you know, with the cost of a new BMW. EV prices, of course, are going to come down over the next few years as more electric cars are produced. California expects to reach cost parity between electric and gas cars by the end of the decade. For now, consumers can rely on rebates, you know, thousands from the federal government that were approved in its recent budget law. And then there's also local incentives. So what's the next move? What are we watching for? Well, you know, all eyes are on the car makers who have so far not opposed this. GM tells me they have a shared vision for an all-electric future with California. You know, Toyota recently announced that it would recognize some of the other California clean car rules. They had opposed them for years. Still, a lot of car makers have pushed back on the targets. You know, they've said they aren't realistic. They want the state to invest in the infrastructure to help make this happen. Obviously, the oil industry isn't happy and says, you know, this will force consumers into cars that they they might not want. You know, how many other states will sign on and how quickly? We just don't know right now. That will determine, you know, whether this is a California thing or if this is really going to actually change the market across the country. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks so much. Uh, it was Kevin Stark in San Francisco, climate editor for our member station, KQED. And today on our podcast, Consider This, we take stock of Dr. Anthony Fauci's nearly four-decade fight against infectious disease. From the AIDS crisis, which brought protests to the doors of the FDA and the NIH. I'm here today because I don't want a quilt with my name on it to be in front of the White House next year. To several flu outbreaks and, of course, COVID-19. We now have five confirmed cases in the United States 
And I would not be surprised at all if we start seeing more in the coming days to weeks. A conversation with America's doctor as he prepares to leave public service later this year today on Consider This. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Katrina Babies, the after effects of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. Stocks were on the ascent today. The Dow rose nearly 1% or 323 points to finish at 33,292. S&P gained nearly 1.5% to close at 41.99. The Nasdaq picked up 1.67% to end the session at 12,639. Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce says it's on track to meet its five-year goal of increasing diversity on its board of directors. The chamber reports it's already increased representation by women and people of color by more than 100%. Since 2017, 44% of board members are women, 31% are people of color. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. On the humid side today, should have a nice night tonight, though. Lots of clouds, about 68 degrees. And then for tomorrow, sunshine again. Temperatures up toward 90 degrees. Light breezes tomorrow. Then for the weekend, we should have sunny skies Saturday and Sunday. Just the chance of an isolated shower Saturday afternoon should be comfortable. Right about 80 degrees tops. This is 90.9 WBUR, 79 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for businesses of any size that comes with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and mobility features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere. More at OOMA.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches. Tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Here we are at the end of August, and around this time 17 years ago, Hurricane Katrina bore down on New Orleans. Is there any way you can get to the roof if need be? I'm stuck in an egg, and me and my little sister and my mom, and they got water in the whole house. The hurricane caused billions of dollars in damage to the city, and the human toll was even higher. Thousands died, and thousands more were displaced, fanned out across the country, far from the homes they knew and trying to start over. Filmmaker Edward Buckles Jr. was one of them. He was just 13 years old when Katrina came. Imagine experiencing something like that and no one ever comes to ask, are you okay? Or like, do you need anything? You know, are you having nightmares? What happens when it's storming outside? 
So in his new documentary, Katrina Babies, Buckles puts questions like these to other kids like him who survived Katrina. Buckles also reconnected with members of his family who stayed behind as the storm rolled in, like his cousin Tina. Her house used to be the gathering spot for Buckles and his cousins, full of warmth, the smell of rice and gravy. Buckles remembered watching the news, worrying that Tina and her family would be killed. Their neighborhood was devastated by the storm, but they survived. Tina's house stood. Even so, Buckles told me it took him years to feel ready to talk with them about the day that they set off on two different paths. I've been speaking to my cousins way more now, and, you know, we've been gathering and planning family trips, and we've been in a group chat and just really rebuilding what we lost from Hurricane Katrina. They lost homes, family connections, a sense of security. For another of Buckle's cousins, his name's Quentin, he lost trust in the government. He lost belief that, that like, his life mattered in that moment at 11 years old. And when he said that, I learned so much about my cousin and, like, so much about, you know, just how Katrina impacted what he was putting out outwardly into the world. So, yes, at age 11 years old, he decided I would never fight for this country. And that speaks volumes, you know. Because, like, that doesn't just mean that he doesn't want to join the army or something. Like, that means that he doesn't have trust in his country. It sounds like, you know, this country, in his mind, wasn't there for him in one of the most traumatic, difficult moments of his life. Yeah, I mean, you know, we have to say that that line that, you know, uh, I would never fight for this country was followed by him saying... We wasn't in here for a day. We was locked in our attics for three days. And that line was followed by his mom saying, when everybody else in the world thought that, you know, New Orleans was good, we were still in our attics. So what does that do to trust? Like, you know, what does that do to one's belief in their lives mattering? And just to be honest, I don't think that he's the only person that feels that way. They may not articulate it the the, uh, exact same way, but a lot of us are dealing with trust issues when it comes to America. So much of what you explore in this film, it's unpacking trauma, the trauma that you experienced, that Quentin experienced. And it's not Mm -hmm. just the trauma of Katrina itself. It's the physical destruction. It's the displacement that comes. It's the violence. Even this many years, 17 years removed, how, how does anybody even begin to heal from trauma that is so compounded, so ingrained? Yeah, yeah. And I didn't go into this film trying to find healing, honestly, because I didn't know that it was possible, right? You know, I didn't know that simply having conversations and starting to tell our stories would be healing. Um, So it wasn't until Maisha said... And tell us real quick who Maisha is. Maisha is, is like one of my best friends, and she is a subject in the film and she is the first person that that breaks down in this film and says, no one ever asked me about my story. And I realized that we weren't just dealing with people telling their stories, we were dealing with people healing. This film is not gonna heal everybody. This film has not healed me, but it has opened up a door for me to figure out, okay, what does that journey to healing looks like? Because as you said, we are not just healing from Hurricane Katrina, but we are healing from everything else that we have experienced before the storm and and after the storm. And I just want us to know that, you know, we can start that journey. You know, as a journalist, I have covered the aftermaths of a lot of 
tragedies and violence across this country. And it seems like there is this pattern every time where something horrible happens in a community and then all of these resources pour in. And when there are kids involved, there are often support systems, counselors, therapists who are brought in to make sure that the kids who are living through whatever the thing is, that they have the ability and the space and the help to process. But when I hear you talk and and your film, people like Maisha, that infrastructure didn't exist for Katrina babies. It was not afforded to you. Why do you think that is? (sighs) Yeah, It's it's a question that I have been asking myself during this whole process. I don't know the answer to that, but I am only left to assume, and God, I hope that I'm wrong. But it is the lack of empathy, it is the uh, lack of care, and it is the lack of respect for black people in this country. You know, specifically speaking from experience, black children in this country. I propose this idea in the film of the double-edged sword of like resilience, right? Mm -hmm. What that sword looks like is, you know, yes, we are resilient. Yes, we take pride in our strength. But on the other side of that is us being viewed as we don't need the uh, same help that other people need because of the fact that we are so strong and we we are so resilient. I think that people are like, look at them, they're good. You know, they're quote unquote bouncing back. Look at them second lining in the streets. New Orleans is rebuilt. New Orleans is New Orleans is coming back. They don't need anything. Look at that. And I think because of that way of thinking, we always miss out on our opportunity for wellness and healing and like our opportunity for proper help and like assistance once we experience something traumatic. You and others in the film make the point that while buildings remain, your house stood, the New Orleans that you knew was destroyed and Mm -hmm. it's not coming back. What do you want people to know about that New Orleans, the New Orleans that you grew up in before Katrina came to town? Yeah. You know, at the end of the film, I say that New Orleans is not rebuilt. And like some people would look at that and be like, what, what do you mean? Like business is thriving. Like y'all are doing great down there. And what I mean is that the New Orleans that we knew, the real New Orleans, the New Orleans that was filled with families, the New Orleans where all you really saw was black people. And, you know, we were in our neighborhoods and we owned our neighborhoods and we took pride in our neighborhoods. And, you know, I just want people to know that when like they're coming, to to a New Orleans and when they are, you know, experiencing like all of this great culture and like all of this great magic and beauty that it comes from us and it comes from all of the people who were here before the storm, some of us who are still there after the storm, right? That's that's what I want people to know is that, you know, everything that you love about New Orleans comes from us. Edward Buckles Jr., director of Katrina Babies. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Katrina Babies is out now on HBO. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, why Congress did not renew the program that expanded free meals to all students during the pandemic. And this evening on Marketplace, we stay with the schools. Teachers often have to pay for classroom supplies with their own money, even during inflationary times. So if I have to spend money for it to be 
an inviting space for them to feel safe, to feel comfortable, and to want to learn, then that's just what I'm going to do. That's coming up tonight on Marketplace. It starts in one hour. In the forecast, bright sunshine, light breezes into the evening hours. Clouds should move in overnight tonight. Temperatures about 68. Tomorrow, sun's back. Could reach 88 degrees. At least it should be breezy once again. Then the weekend's looking pretty nice. Saturday, mostly sunny and cooler, about 81 degrees for a high. The off chance of an afternoon shower Saturday. And for Sunday, should be sunny and dry, topping out at just about 80. 78 degrees now in the Boston area at 530. Her name is Daria Dukina, less well-known than her father, but quite an important figure in the Russian media and propaganda landscape to promote Russian imperialism and anti-Americanism that her father laid out. And so when the invasion of Ukraine happened, this was her moment as well. I'm Natalie Kitroev. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Two months after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, the states of Ohio, or rather of Idaho, Texas, and Tennessee enacted new bans on most abortions today, while Idaho is moving forward despite a legal challenge from the Biden administration. NPR's Sarah McCammon tells us, more about these so-called trigger laws. Already those states have abortion restrictions on the books. What's happening now is that, in many cases, more restrictive laws, laws that uh, make abortion a felony as opposed to uh, something you can sue to try to stop, are taking effect. In Texas, already abortion access is non-existent, but now abortion becomes a felony with narrow exceptions to save the life of a patient. Tennessee already had a law prohibiting most abortions after six weeks. Now abortions are all illegal with no exceptions. NPR's Sarah McCammon, 11 states now have total bans on abortion. It's estimated that nearly 21 million people have no access to elective abortions in their home states. In New York, a judge has granted disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein an appeal in his sexual assault conviction. Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison for rape and sexual abuse and is currently awaiting a separate trial here in California. NPR's Andrew Limbong reports. Harvey Weinstein's legal team has tried numerous times to get an appeal, and a New York judge granted the opportunity last week. In a statement, Weinstein's lawyer said, quote, We are grateful that Chief Judge DeFiori acknowledged the substantial legal issues in this case, and we are hopeful that the entire court will find that Mr. Weinstein did not receive a fair trial and reverse his conviction. It's possible that Weinstein's conviction could be upheld or he could be granted a new trial. This decision doesn't affect Harvey Weinstein's upcoming California trial, where he... And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The federal agency that oversees the MBTA is rejecting a complaint from advocates for people of color about the ongoing Orange Line shutdown. Lawyers for Civil Rights asked the Federal Transit Administration to look into why the T did not conduct an equity analysis on communities of color on the impact of the 30-day shutdown. The administration responded by saying equity reviews are not required for temporary line shutdowns or for emergency repairs. Transit advocates say the MBTA should go fare-free because of upcoming service reductions. The transit agency says it will reduce bus service on more than 40 routes because of staffing shortages. The changes begin next week. Stacy Thompson is executive director of the organization Livable Streets. 
you could be spending an extra hour, an extra two hours trying to get around the city. And that's lost wages. That's lost time with your family. It's having a real economic and livability impact for the people who live and work in Metro Boston. Additionally, T service on several subway lines will remain on a reduced schedule through the fall. Governor Charlie Baker is asking state lawmakers to dedicate more money to school safety. He announced plans today to file a bill that would send $40 million toward resources, such as a tip line for potential threats. The money would also support emergency response training for teachers and administrators. Baker cites the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, as proof that more has to be done to secure schools. Massachusetts school systems are hiring bus driver positions ahead of the new school year. Governor Baker calls the situation a challenge for many districts, but he says they should meet the challenge. He was asked today whether he'll call the National Guard in to drive school buses, as he did last year. We don't anticipate it this time. I mean, basic message I've been getting from people is um, we haven't heard that yet. Obviously, we've done it before. If we need to, we'll do it again. Baker says so far no district has asked for this kind of help this year, but he says the option's open. The child mentoring program Friends of the Children Boston is getting its largest single gift in the program's history. It's almost $2.5 million as part of a $44 million gift from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott to 12 chapters nationally. The program links young people 12 and older with adult mentors. The Boston chapter expects that the gift will double the number of children served and expand its footprint regionally. Boston's Berkeley College of Music has awarded Joni Mitchell an honorary doctorate. The school presented Mitchell with the honor this week during a ceremony in California. 70-year-old Mitchell attended with friends and fellow musicians Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. She said words can't describe the meaning of the degree to her. Over her career, Mitchell has earned 10 Grammys and the Kennedy Center honors as well. We should have a cloudy night tonight, then sunshine should grace us through the weekend. Tonight's low is about 68 degrees. And then for tomorrow, Saturday and sunny, uh, Sunday, sunny skies near 90 degrees tomorrow. And then cooler over the weekend, just about 80 degrees. Red Sox tonight get one more chance to pull out a win over the Blue Jays. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com dot com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As a new school year starts, millions of kids across the country are no longer receiving free meals. The program offering that support to all students during the pandemic has expired. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports on how the change is affecting families. It's lunchtime at Mountain View Elementary, a school tucked inside a quiet neighborhood in Boise, Idaho. Kids walk through familiar hallways and gather at long cafeteria room tables. But one big thing is different this year. Hey James, I need you to go back and get in line. Okay, stay right there. If you have a cold lunch, you're gonna go sit. Instead of everyone getting in line for lunch, students who've brought their own meals are asked to separate and sit down. A student says that I should report on the school's mac and cheese. It's a favorite. 
But when I ask why she has a lunchbox and isn't eating the mac and cheese, she responds bluntly, because we have to pay for it now. During the pandemic, all students in public schools could get meals for free as Congress did away with national income requirements. Now, rigid federal income limits are back. A family of four cannot make more than $51,000 a year to qualify for reduced price meals or $36,000 a year for free meals. Our grocery budget could not afford, you know, $750 a day, like five days a week. That's Vanessa Gamma a mother of three students at Mountain View. Even though she works part-time and her husband works full-time, she says high prices for food and other bills are still a financial pressure. The cost of housing and the cost of gas, it just always, even though we're not on the edge, it still always feels like we're teetering. This year, Gamma's kids don't qualify for reduced-price meals. I would love it if the government would reevaluate taking this away from our schools. It was one less thing for parents to worry about, knowing that their children were well-fed um, when they were at school. Free meal advocates argue bringing back income requirements will mean the return of old problems. These include lunch debt held by families and unequal treatment of students. Here's Crystal Fitzsimmons of the Food Research and Action Center. By offering meals to all kids at no charge, you're ensuring that there's not going to be a stigma associated with participating because the program's just for low-income kids. Sarah Kremerling of Boulder, Colorado, is a parent whose children have qualified for free lunches on and off. It largely depends on whether she's working. I fill out the application every year, but um, the only time I've been able to qualify for them is usually when I'm working, like, almost less than part-time. Like, I, I really can't be working at all to qualify for them. She's preparing to lose access to free meals for her two grade school children. Her kids prefer to eat the lunches the school provides with all their friends. But the cost of meals, which are increasing by 50 cents this year, makes it prohibitive. The lunches that the schools provide are really good. They're hot, they're fresh. But almost 10 bucks a day for each kid to eat, you know, 20 bucks a day, it just it adds up. Pretty quickly. Earlier this summer, Congress sought to pass a bill that would provide another year of universal free meals. Supporters said Congress could fully pay for it for one more year without placing the cost on taxpayers. Generally, Republicans are united against universal free meals, even temporary ones. They argue it would be too expensive. Congress never intended to provide universal free breakfast and lunches to all K-12 students regardless of need. That's Representative Virginia Fox, a GOP member from North Carolina who leads the House Education and Labor Committee during a floor speech debating the waiver extensions in June. By returning these programs back to normal, we can uphold our responsibility to taxpayers and the principle that aid should be targeted and temporary. Recently, five states passed legislation to provide free meals to students. California's the biggest. But advocates say federal action is needed. They hope the White House makes a push for universal free meals following a conference on hunger, nutrition, and health next month. Until then, parents like Gamma and Kremerling will be facing tough choices to feed their kids. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Boise. What does summer taste like around the world? Watermelon, for a lot of us. In the Gaza Strip, there is a watermelon delicacy that NPR's Daniel Estrin wanted to try. So he did, and he sent us this postcard. 
There's an aura of intrigue surrounding this dish. I visited a family that cooks it on a fire next to their house. It is nighttime, and oh my gosh, there is a plate of little tiny ajar, ajar, little baby unripe watermelons. It's made only for a short time in summer in the southern part of Gaza, traditionally associated with Bedouin desert culture. Palestinians from around Gaza take field trips here to see how it's done. So did food legend Anthony Bourdain. And we took our own pilgrimage. Mohammed Kadeh is tending the fire and speaks through an interpreter. It's truly like representing the simplicity of like having some veggies. It's very simple and to make it for a delicacy. This vegetarian dish goes by many names. Fatet Ajer, Lassima, Gursa. But the main ingredient is tiny little watermelons about the size of oranges, grown in the sandy soil and picked early before they turn sweet and red. Wow, you just cracked open that baby watermelon with your bare hands like a karate chop. It smells like a pumpkin. It's, it's completely white. You roast them whole over an open fire along with eggplants, then wash off the charcoal outsides to get to the fleshy insides. Okay, what's going on over here on this side of the house? We've got an enormous, enormous clay pot completely full of hot peppers, tomatoes, garlic, cucumber, dehydrated sheep milk, and they're grinding all of that into a pulp. The flesh of those baby watermelons are being thrown into that mush. This dish takes a village, from the little kids to a dozen male cousins and neighbors. Family elder Yusuf Kudeh sits in his plastic chair, wearing an embroidered gray gown and a Nike baseball hat. I want to, to tell you about the, our land before, how the land, our land is uh, pure. This dish reminds him of the old days, when people subsided off the natural bounty of the land, before modern diets brought diabetes, before a new road was paved right here through his open field, before Gaza became crowded, squeezed into tight borders. And the people coming, 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 coming. The population is growing. It's, we lose the, the, the land. Meanwhile, the fire has died down. I can see the Big Dipper, and now he's covering the dough with the embers. The last step, baking flat, round bread, then tearing it up into the veggie mush with a healthy pour of olive oil, and then we grab spoons and circle around a large dish. That's lovely. It's like a big, chunky mix of baba ganoush, a little spicy kick, and that watery, kind of juicy feeling of that baby watermelon. It was only when we left that I learned that the 20 unripe watermelons that they had just roasted for us were the last of their homegrown stock. They'd been saving them for a special occasion. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Khan Yunus, in the Gaza Strip. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Six months ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. What Moscow thought would be a quick operation to seize control has turned into a deadly, protracted war. The U.S. has responded with sanctions and billions of dollars of weaponry. But with inflation here at home and no end in sight to the war, NPR's Jackie Northam explores a question. Should the U.S. still care about the outcome in Ukraine? 
The searing images and reports of atrocities in Ukraine in the early days of the war sparked outrage in the U.S. and a demand that the Biden administration take action. In March, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs took a poll which found Americans strongly in favor of U.S. support for Ukraine. It took another poll earlier this month. Actually, what we found was that support is pretty solid still. It hasn't changed too much since last March. Dina Smelt is a senior fellow at the Chicago Council and the author of the report. She says about 2,000 people from across the U.S. were polled. At least 70 percent support continuing a range of economic and military assistance to Ukraine, short of sending troops. We found that when we put it in terms of American households, that they might have to pay higher gas and food prices um, if we continue to assist Ukraine. They said we should stick with Ukraine for as long as it takes, rather than urge them to seize some territory to create a ceasefire. Smelt says many felt Russia's invasion was morally wrong, and nearly three-quarters backed increasing American military aid to Ukraine. The U.S. has already supplied or promised roughly $13 billion of security assistance. Peter Rao, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, says the money spent is little compared to what's at stake in Ukraine. I think the prosperity in the U.S. is directly connected to peace in Europe. The transatlantic economy is the largest in the world. It's about $1.5 trillion in annual trade. Rao says to that end, the U.S. needs to be part of the coalition to push back Russia. To put it in more practical terms... Think of the Mercedes plant outside of Tuscaloosa or BMW near Spartanburg, South Carolina. Those exports and investments sustain millions of jobs, and they really do depend on the U.S.-led order reigning supreme in Europe. George Beebe, with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, agrees the U.S. can't allow Russia to take Ukraine by force. But he questions how long Congress will want to keep pumping billions of dollars into a war that at the moment neither side is winning nor losing. The United States can't provide economic and military aid to Ukraine for years and years to come. Over time, people are going to be questioning whether we might be better served by finding some sort of exit from all of this. Bibi, who was a longtime Russia specialist at the CIA, says the U.S. hasn't seriously grappled with how it wants the war in Ukraine to end. It could continue military support with no end in sight. Or, he says, the U.S. may have to set its sights on something more realistic than a win-lose situation, Ukrainian neutrality. The Ukrainians obviously have given that more serious considerations than we have. So if it's something that the Ukrainians are willing to consider, I think it's something that the United States needs to be willing to consider. But U.S. diplomacy so far is aimed at strengthening Ukraine's hand in the war and rallying countries to do the same. U.S. officials say if they thought Russia was serious about diplomacy, the U.S. would help facilitate talks if Ukraine agrees. Jackie Northam, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, how Blondie broke through punk to become a pop star. Red Sox are hoping Cutter Crawford can help them from being swept by the Blue Jays. The third and final game of their series starts tonight at 7-10. Kevin Grossman will pitch for the Jays. Sox are 1-5 in their last six games. This fall, Fenway Park will again host a high school football game Thanksgiving week. In fact, more than one game. 
Park officials announced a lineup of four rivalry games today. They include Boston Latin Academy versus O'Brien and Malden against Medford. The ballpark resumed hosting high school football regularly in 2015 after an 80-year hiatus. WBR wants to hear from you. Please take our survey and tell us how we're doing. Go to WBUR.org survey. And thanks a lot. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, do you have a tattoo? Body art has gone mainstream, but did you know that tattooing was illegal in Massachusetts for 38 years? And before that, one father and three sons dominated the colorful industry in Boston's old Scully Square. It is hidden history. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Reaction continues to pour in following the news that the Biden administration will forgive up to $10,000 of federal student loans per borrower. And that amount goes up to $20,000 for lower-income Pell Grant recipients. It is a complicated and controversial topic. Some say the amounts aren't enough. Others say loan forgiveness should not happen at all. But for those with outstanding debt? The president's announcement is bringing me incredible peace of mind right now. That is Sean Manning here in Washington, D.C. The forgiveness plan cuts his loan balance in half. I didn't believe I was going to be able to pay off these loans anytime in the near future, but now the situation at least feels manageable. Like, at some point, I could afford to do something crazy, like put a down payment on a house before I turn 40. Meanwhile, Carol Oldham in Boston says half of both her and her husband's loans will be forgiven which makes a huge difference in the amount that we're paying each month, right? It's the difference between we have to be really careful about how we spend money in the rest of our lives and being able to have a little bit more freedom to put money back into the economy. She says now they're looking at buying a newer used car since their current one has been a struggle to keep running. But as grateful as she is, she wants to see the government address the root causes of the student debt crisis. And she takes particular issue with those who see the student loan forgiveness as a gift to the wealthy. If you're wealthy, you don't have to take out loans to start with. And so generally speaking, the folks with a lot of loans tend to be people who are not from the most advantaged part of society. And as for the idea that this isn't fair to those who've already paid off their loans? Well, Dylan Roth is one of them. In fact, he made his final payment on Tuesday, right before the announcement. And I felt very, very silly. Luckily, under the new forgiveness plan, Roth can apply for a refund for payments made since March 2020. Even without that benefit, Roth says he's happy for anyone who gets their debt erased. I don't want other people's lives being harder out of spite for myself. Roth says he did feel some temporary rage at having given away a few months' rent right before this was enacted. But... I think it's silly to be angry about debt forgiveness. If you don't ever want conditions to get easier for people who come after you, then nothing will ever get better. That's Dylan Roth in Brooklyn, Carol Oldham in Boston, and Sean Manning in Washington, D.C. Blondie has sold more than 40 million records worldwide since the band emerged in New York City in the 1970s. Blondie's still touring and working on new music. It's also releasing an archival box set tomorrow called Against the Odds, 1974-1982. Over those decades, Blondie wrote a wave and created something timeless, as Allison McCabe reports. In the early 1970s, the Greenwich Village folk scene had faded. A new sound was wafting up from the street. Try it! Pick it up! 
New York Dolls frontman David Johansson says it found a home built on the ruins of a former hotel. Well, I was friends with Eric Emerson, who had a band called Magic Tramps. And he said that he was going to do a gig at this new place, Mercer Art Center. And uh, would my band want to come and open for him? It quickly turned into a weekly gig. And like a scene started kind of coming around us. And it was beautiful. A lot of people like who would see each other on the street, you know, and this gave them a chance to be in the same kind of place. Chris Stein and Debbie Harry were regulars at Mercer Arts, but in 1973, the venue literally collapsed. CBGB opened a few blocks away, and that's where their band Blondie played its first gig in 1974. Roberta Bailey worked the door. I would say for the first year of Blondie, they were kind of looked down, quite frankly, as like the band least likely to succeed. They hadn't coalesced as a group, really, until Clem Burke joined the band, and then he brought in Gary Valentine. By 1976, Belly was chief photographer of Punk Magazine. Blondie added Jimmy Destry on keys and got signed to a small label called Private Stock. The band's debut album featured 60s pop sounds like girl groups and surf rock, filtered through a prism of glitter and grit. I saw you standing on the corner. You look so big and fine. I really wanted to go out with you. So when you smiled, I laid my heart on the line. Blondie's look matched its sound. The guys wore thrift store suits and skinny ties. Debbie Harry bleached her hair but let the dark roots show. She says she was putting a downtown spin on Hollywood glam. very fascinated by these uh, women that, you know, had this glowing kind of image on film. And it seemed like, you know, something that I could do. A year later, Blondie switched to Chrysalis Records. Touring in support of its 1978 album, Plastic Letters, the band picked up a number two hit on the British charts with the gender-flip reworking of an old doo-wop song discovered on a K-Tel compilation. Hey, we've got a good sound to start off Top of the Bumps this week. It's Blondie and a number called Denise. Chris Stein says American audiences were slower to warm to music that was neither strictly punk nor pop. When we first went to the UK, and everybody started flinging themselves around. It was kind of enlightening because in New York, it just wasn't happening yet. For Blondie's next effort, producer Mike Chapman worked the band hard, extracting hits from its eclectic experiments. As they were wrapping up, Stein and Harry shared a song with a funky dance group that they had started sketching as early as There have been a couple of versions since then, but bringing in a Roland drum machine gave it an entirely different vibe. Tucked away on the B-side of the 1978 album Parallel Lines, Heart of Glass became Blondie's first American number one hit. Despite some pushback from the anti-disco crowd, Blondie became a global sensation with plenty of fans back home. Gretchen Green was in the midst of a divorce when she and her daughter moved from the suburbs to a sprawling loft around the corner from CBGB. There was a lot of lawlessness, a lot of stolen cars that were burned on East First Street. You would see cars 
going the wrong way up 2nd Avenue. Green says they had very little furniture, but they had skates, a scooter, and a turntable. So they made do. We'd put on Blondie, and we would just carry on like we were at a roller skating rink. Blondie put off three more albums by 1982. One of the band's most iconic songs was 1980's Rapture, a sci-fi riff on a new sound just starting to bubble up to the surface. Well, now you see what you want to be. Just have your party on TV, because the man from Mars won't eat up bars where the TV's on. Now he's gone back up to space, where he would have a house with the human race. And hip-hop, and don't stop. The music video was a downtown street scene featuring Fab Five Freddy, Lee Quinones, and Basquiat. And they did the punk rock, too. For NPR News, I'm Allison McCabe. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from MGM, presenting 3,000 Years of Longing, a film from George Miller, director of Mad Max Fury Road, starring Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton, playing only in movie theaters August 26th. And from Fisher Investments, wealth management from dedicated advisors that tailor portfolios to each client's unique goals. More at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Beautiful sunshine into the evening hours. Light breezes. Clouds should move in tonight, though, down about 68 degrees. Then for tomorrow, the sunshine returns. Could reach 88 tomorrow. Should be breezy once again. Then for the weekend, glorious. Saturday, mostly sunny and cooler, about 81 for a high. The off chance of an afternoon shower. Sunday, sunny and dry. Should top out at 80 degrees. Tonight at Fenway Park, the Sox get one more chance to pull out a win over the Blue Jays. Rookie cutter Crawford throws the first pitch at 7-10. Kevin Gossman pitches for Toronto. This is 90.9 WBUR. It is 5:59. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As the screeching subway has gone silent in Boston, MBTA riders sound off about the shutdowns on the T and the safety problems that caused them. There's no way this is going to be over by September 19th. If this is over by Christmas, I'll eat my hat. Riders have their say this half hour. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, President Biden plans to erase up to $20,000 in college debt for tens of millions of borrowers and is drawing praise and criticism. More young people in Japan are waving off alcohol and the government wishes they wouldn't. And singer-songwriter F.C. from Dorchester coming into their own through music. This pick for a local artist to watch coming up. It's 6.01.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. A federal judge in Florida is ordering the release by midday tomorrow of a redacted version of the affidavit used in the search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. NPR's Ryan Lucas has the story. In his two-page order, federal magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart says he has reviewed the Justice Department's proposed redactions to the affidavit, and he says they are narrowly tailored to protect the integrity of the government's ongoing investigation. The rest of the document, however, can be released. Reinhardt has ordered the department to make public on the court's docket the redacted version of the affidavit by noon Eastern on Friday. The Justice Department has opposed releasing any of the affidavit, saying doing so could undermine its investigation. Media organizations have been pushing for its release. They say there's enormous public interest in what was an unprecedented search of a former president's home. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. As Russia's war against Ukraine grinds into its sixth month, Russian leader Vladimir Putin is apparently moving to replenish troop strength there. Putin ordering a 13 percent increase in the size of the country's total armed forces, raising the number of active duty military by 137,000 to just over 1.1 million. It's just the latest sign Russia's bracing for what may be a long war with Ukraine. U.S. officials have estimated Russia suffered as many as 80,000 casualties, counting both dead and wounded since its invasion of Ukraine. President Biden has signed an executive order starting the implementation of $280 billion in funding to boost U.S. domestic chip-making and scientific research. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports Biden issued the executive order just weeks after signing the new legislation into law. The executive order reflects the urgency the Biden administration feels to quickly increase production of semiconductors that are used for everything from cars to phones to toasters. The Biden administration is desperate to address a national shortage of semiconductors, one of the most consequential industries impacted by supply chain problems. Biden's executive order sets six primary priorities to guide implementation. It also establishes an interagency implementation council led by National Economic Director Brian Deese, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and Acting Office of Science and Technology Policy Director Alondra Nelson. Franco Ordonez. NPR News, the White House. California's powerful Air Resources Board has signed off on a sweeping new rule that will require all new cars sold in that state to be electric or plug-in hybrid by 2035, a move likely to hasten the demise of vehicles powered by internal combustion engines. Policy seeks to bring about a dramatic cut in carbon emissions and comes two years after Governor Gavin Newsom first directed regulators to consider such a plan. If the goal is reached, California could cut vehicle emissions in, in the most populous state in half by 2040. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 322 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Charlie Baker says the school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, is proof that more should be done to secure schools. He said today he plans to ask lawmakers for more money to pay for school safety initiatives. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor will file a supplemental budget that includes $40 million to beef up school security, including grants for communications upgrades, a pilot tip line to report potential threats, and ongoing emergency response training for school officials. He says that while Massachusetts gun laws have helped keep classrooms safe, there's more that can be done. It's important to be prepared and as school starts up again to know what resources are being made available and no child should fear going to school in the morning or feel uncertainty over how safe their building or their classroom is. Public safety officials say they will continue to work directly with school districts to develop and maintain multi-hazard evacuation plans. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. 
The MBTA is extending its reduced levels of service into the fall. The agency says it will continue to run limited orange line trains even after the line reopens from its 30-day shutdown. The red and blue lines will also stick to a reduced schedule. Roughly 40 bus routes face new service cuts starting this weekend. The T says a lack of staff is driving the disruptions. A substantial number of voters are still undecided as to who they'll be voting for in the state primary that's less than two weeks away. A poll released today by the Conservative Fiscal Alliance Foundation finds voters of both parties still have not made up their minds. On the Republican ticket for governor, about a third of voters have not decided. On the Democratic side for attorney general, 49 percent say they haven't decided. For auditor, that undecided number was at 75 percent. In the forecast, increasing clouds overnight tonight again, just about 68 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine, temperatures creeping up toward 90 light breezes again tomorrow. The weekend is looking glorious. Saturday and Sunday, sunshine both days, the off chance of an isolated shower on Saturday. Weekend highs right about 80 degrees tops. 76 degrees now in Boston at 606. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, supporting those working towards a day when no one has to choose between paying rent, putting food on the table, and protecting their health and the health of others. RWJF.org. PR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden's plan to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars in student debt is drawing cheers. Also, plenty of booze. Borrowers are happy with the prospect of having up to $20,000 in college loans forgiven. Critics are questioning the fairness and the economic fallout of the president's plan. We are going to talk through some of the arguments for and against the plan with NPR's Scott Horsley. Hey, Scott. Good to be with you, Mary Louise. People are worked up about this. Lay out the gist for me of the arguments pro and con. Well, uh, obviously, if student debt is a big burden for a lot of people, and under this plan, 43 million people stand to have their loan payments reduced. 20 million of those would have their debts forgiven altogether. So if your payments are cut or eliminated, that means you have more money to spend elsewhere. Maybe you can buy that car you've been looking at, make a down payment on a house or even put more money aside for your own kids' college education. <laughs> right. uh, so this does have the potential to raise the living standards for tens of millions of people. On the other hand, critics say that additional spending could just pour more gasoline on the inflationary fires in an economy where businesses are already struggling to keep up with consumer demand. Now, we should note this is different than, say, those $1,200 relief checks that the government sent out to just about everyone last year. It's not as if people with student loans would suddenly have $20,000 transferred to their bank account. Uh, Instead, they would be relieved of making loan payments over the course of many years. And because that relief would be spread out, Ali Bustamante, who's with the left-leaning Roosevelt Institute, says this really wouldn't move the needle on inflation all that much. There's really a drop in the bucket when it comes to just the massive level of consumer spending that we have in our very service and consumer-driven economy. The White House also notes that the remaining student loan payments, uh, which have been on hold throughout the pandemic, are about to restart next year. And so that's going to offset some of the additional spending power and potential inflation pressures that would come with this loan forgiveness. Although we should note inflation is not the only issue that, that critics of this plan are raising. What else? 
No, an- another big complaint has to do with fairness. Uh, you are essentially transferring this debt from individuals and families to the federal government and ultimately to taxpayers, uh, and that includes people who you know, maybe scrimped and saved to pay for their own college or uh, the majority of Americans who don't go to college. Uh, they might not mind subsidizing a newly minted social worker who earns, say, $25,000 a year, but they might bristle at underwriting debt relief for a business school graduate who's about to go off to Wall Street and earn six figures. The White House says 90% of this debt relief would go to people making under $75,000 a year, but the plan does allow for couples earning up to a quarter million dollars to get some debt relief, and that might rub some people the wrong way. Lower-income borrowers who qualified for Pell Grants in college are eligible for twice as much debt forgiveness as other borrowers, but Mark Goldwine, who's with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, still thinks this plan does does a lot to help people who might not really need the assistance. I still think a lot of this benefit is going to go to doctors, lawyers, MBAs, other graduates that have very high earnings potential and may even have very high earnings this year already. So that, that fairness issue is another big big complaint. What about what all this might mean for the, the basic question of how much it costs to go to college in this country? Yeah, this is maybe the biggest beef that economists have with this plan. For years, the cost of college education has soared much faster than overall inflation. And this debt forgiveness doesn't really do anything to fix that problem. In fact, it could make it even worse. Goldwine worries about the message that debt relief would send to, say, a high school student today who's thinking about where to go to college and how to pay for it. People are going to assume there's a likelihood that debt is canceled again and again. And if you assume there's a likelihood it's canceled, you're going to be more likely to take out more debt up front. That's going to give colleges more pricing power to raise tuition without pressure and to offer more low-value degrees. So Goldwine calls this just a, a Band-Aid on a, on a bigger problem. And the old rule in economics, Mary Louise, is when the government subsidizes something, you tend to get more of it. In this case, that could include high tuition and college debt. We shall see if the rule holds in this case. And Pierre Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan appeared in court today. He faces legal cases that could result in his disqualification from politics. Khan still has a lot of popular support, but some warn that his tactics of demanding early elections and taking on the military may lead to conflict. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad. Dozens of men squeeze into the main gate of an Islamabad courthouse flanking their leader. They toss aside a metal detector, impeding their entry. They chant, who will save Pakistan? Imran Khan, Imran Khan. Khan was at the courthouse to extend his protective bail after he was charged with terrorism offences over the weekend. This is only one of four legal cases Khan faces right now. Any of them could disqualify him from politics. Standing on the stairs of the courthouse, Khan tells his followers, that's the point. They're afraid of our power. We are winning by elections. We're holding historic public gatherings. They want to deliver a tactical knockout against me. A senior aide, Azam Swati, tells us who he thinks is trying to bring Khan down. There is a deep state. You understand the meaning of the deep state. In Pakistan, the deep state largely refers to the all-powerful military, an institution that many once saw as closely allied to Khan. No one could have predicted that Imran Khan, who came to power riding on the shoulders of Pakistan's army, would have fallen out so disastrously. 
Omar Waraish is a political analyst and reporter who formerly covered Pakistan. He says last year Khan fell out with the chief of army staff over the fate of a powerful intelligence chief who was widely seen as the architect of Khan's rise to power. By April, Khan was ousted as prime minister in a no-confidence vote in parliament. He's whipped up support since then at rallies by telling followers falsely that he was the victim of a US-orchestrated coup carried out by his corrupt rivals. He rails against the army's top brass for not backing him. His supporters amplify his claims on social media. Moraish again? What Imran Khan is seeking to do is really raising the stakes. He seems to perceive a schism within the ruling military establishment and seems to be seeking the support of some of the military against the army chief, which is very, very rare in Pakistani history. Beyond that support, Khan is also a force at the ballot box, where his party and allies have been winning by-elections across Pakistan since his ouster. Madiha Afzal is a fellow at the Brookings Institution. She says Pakistan has seen showdowns between civilian leaders and the military before, but nothing like this. I think we're in an unprecedented moment in terms of the kind of confrontation, the kind of potential turmoil it could generate. That is what we're watching for in the next few weeks. But that turmoil surrounding Khan is drawing attention away from pressing issues facing Pakistan right now, including extreme flooding this summer and an economy that needs a bailout. And even as Khan's followers are sure he'll save Pakistan, his critics fear he may destroy it. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. The government of Japan is trying to get young adults to drink more alcohol, this to boost tax revenues. Japan's alcohol consumption has been on the decline for decades. The new campaign arrives with some controversy, as NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports. The campaign is dubbed Sake Viva. Sake is a rice wine. In Japanese, it also refers to alcohol in general. Sake Viva is a contest aimed at 20 and 30-somethings to suggest new ways to make and sell alcoholic beverages. Some critics have complained that the campaign could damage public health. Ryo Tanabe, who's in his 30s, likes to have the occasional drink, and he has no problem with the government encouraging others to do the same. But it's not so much what is being encouraged that puts him off, he says. It's who's doing the encouraging. The fact that the National Tax Agency is doing this makes it a different story. I feel something is wrong with it. I understand they need the tax revenue, but I don't think they have to go this far. Going out drinking with colleagues after work has long been common in Japan. But Tanabe says things are changing. Maybe this is just at my company, but bosses and workers don't get along. So young people don't want to go out for drinks, even if they are invited. Toshihiko Oki is a journalist who covers the alcohol industry. He notes that during the pandemic, local governments in Japan have asked restaurants not to serve alcohol. Japan's liquor tax revenue in fiscal year 2020 saw its biggest drop in more than three decades. Japan's COVID-19 countermeasures included lots of financial support to restaurants, which refrained from serving alcohol, but there was no support for sake brewers. Of course, the economy is struggling, and many Japanese just don't have extra income to spend on booze. But what Japanese are drinking, Oki says, also has to do with what they're eating. 
People in their 70s and 80s, our grandparents' generation, eat traditional Japanese food, but the post-baby boomer generations drink wine and beer. They go better with the foreign foods they're eating. And in Japan's competitive society, many young people see going out for a drink with colleagues after work not as a way to relieve stress, but as a way to pile it on. Socializing is seen as exhausting and a waste of mental energy. Japanese worry about how they're seen by other people, and they want to avoid getting drunk and blurting out anything that could trigger criticism. This leaves Oki little room for optimism about Japanese society. The population is aging and shrinking, and on top of that, he says, its young people are increasingly lonely, inward-looking, and isolated. Given the larger shifts, Oki says, government efforts to get people to drink and be merry are unlikely to succeed. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, born in Dorchester, studying at Northeastern and making great music. Our latest local musician we're featuring, coming up. On Wall Street, stocks were on the ascent today. The Dow rose nearly 1%, 323 points, to finish at 33,292. S&P gained nearly 1.5% to close at 4199 The Nasdaq picked up 1.67% to end the session at 12,639. This is WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at sullivantire.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Some clouds moving in tonight down around 68 degrees for tomorrow. Sunshine's back could reach 88 degrees and then cooler for the weekend, but just as sunny. This is WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A partial shutdown of the subway system in Boston is challenging commuters. The second busiest line on the T, as it's called, has stopped running. The orange line's closed for repairs after a series of accidents. As NPR's Tovia Smith reports, that's created confusion and delays. Boston loves to boast about all its firsts, the nation's first public park, first lighthouse, and first subway system built in the late 1800s. But age is not always an asset. Since I was a kid, they're still using it. I'm 50 years old. They're still using the same orange light. That's why we're in this mess. Mark Rapucci is one of many commuters frustrated by long-deferred updates of Boston's aging transit system. They just got a bunch of banana heads running the transportation. They don't know what they're doing. Safety concerns came to a head recently after a spate of crashes and accidents, two of them fatal. Last month, riders had to jump from a train that caught fire on a bridge. One jumped into the river below. It's psychologically damaging because you think, is this the day that something's going to happen because it's happening so often? Commuter Rob Robert Thomas says he had his own scare when two trains collided last year. I almost got hit by that train. 
I jumped out the way for that crash. The Federal Transit Administration is now investigating T-safety. T-officials say the shutdown is enabling them to replace tracks and upgrade systems to improve safety ASAP instead of over five years of nights and weekends, an unprecedented move that Mayor Michelle Wu had been calling for. We can no longer tolerate just trying to fix things up here or there. It is time to talk about just ripping the Band-Aid off and taking drastic action. But the improvements come at a price. Oh my God, I'm not going to get to the appointment. On board one of the shuttle buses running in lieu of the Orange Line, Princess Alowu was running late despite allowing four hours for a trip that should take one. Newly hired shuttle bus drivers also needed direction this week. Go ahead, Dale. No, no, go, go. Some as confused as commuters like Robert Thomas. They shut the green line down so I would have to get on the 66 to the orange line. But now the orange line shut down, so now I have to come to the shuttle bus, and then I get to the shuttle bus, and it takes me to another shuttle bus. I'm like, wait, what? People need to just keep their cool. Kama Sadler was one of many urging patience and calm. Seth Brown agrees the inconvenience is short-term pain for long-term gain. In order to progress, we should be willing to roll with the punches. The real test of the shuttle system will come as summer ends and streets and trains fill back up. Officials say staffing shortages require service reductions through the fall. And some are balking at what they call a disproportionate impact of it all on communities of color. T officials say the good news is the work is on track to finish on time, though many in Boston remain skeptical. There's no way this is going to be over by September 19th. If this is over by Christmas, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> Many Bostonians are hoping humor helps them through their transit travails. From this performance at a tea station to Civil War-style dispatches from the front, tweeted by commuter Brian Estabrook. I fear we have not seen a disaster of this magnitude since Fredericksburg. His latest came after two construction vehicles enlisted to prevent future train derailments actually derailed themselves. Father, our daring campaign commences and with it setbacks. Derailments have already reared their ugly head. Faith in the T's command is waning, Esterbrook says. He'd desert the T if he could, but he needs it to get to work. Tovia Smith, NPR News, Boston. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Popular musicians have been singing about teen angst since the advent of rock and roll. But the Boston singer-songwriter F.C. offers a fresh take on the trend, writing about adolescence with the insight that comes with age. I started changing before everyone else. Happened so fast, didn't even know myself. FC, and that's E-P-H-S-E-E, is a 22-year-old Northeastern University student from Dorchester. Their songs draw on being black and non-binary. Many of their lyrics describe feeling like an outsider in a way people might relate to. FC is WBUR critic Amelia Mason's newest pick for a series on rising local musicians to watch, Sound On. It's always a good sign when I listen through an album and then immediately play it again. That's what happened when I listened to FC's EP, Girlhood. The songs are about feeling insecure as a teen. 
but the music is very polished and self-assured. It really captures that dreamy, innocent time in your life from the perspective of someone who's older and a little wiser. The first song on the EP is called The Pill, and it's one of those songs that just makes you sit up straight and listen from its very first lines. I was okay in high school, but that all changed when I took the pill. Wanted to be a grown-up, but all it did was make me shrill. I was a theater kid, but I just played strippers and drama queens. FC says in high school, they played lead roles in musicals. And because their body developed early and they had a powerful voice, they often played very adult roles. In retrospect, they feel they were typecast. It wasn't until afterwards when I realized, like, oh, like, this gave me, like, body image issues and I can't see myself outside of this hypersexualized, you know, role now. And, F says, they were just perceived differently from other kids because they were one of only a few black students at a predominantly white private high school. They felt like black kids were not really seen by their peers as dating material. So when F was young, they really yearned for love. And their reflections on that inspired the song, Did I? Did I really want to be in love? Or did I just feel like I had to prove myself in that way growing up? FC grew up in Dorchester, and their given name is Felicia Cabral. Their parents are Cape Verdean, and F says that as a child of immigrants, they felt a lot of pressure to excel in school. But they were also interested in music from a very early age, learning to sing first in school choir, and then honing their voice in high school musicals and college a cappella. They recalled when they wrote their first song at 10 years old and performed it at summer camp. So the verse went... There's too many things inside my head. Too many things that have been said. You might be able to tell from this song that F was a natural musician and had a really firm grasp of pop song structure at a very young age. And then the chorus. I have unknown pain. I have unknown strength. I can beat you down, beat you to the ground. I got the chance to observe them in a recording studio at Northeastern, working on an idea for a song. Okay, I'll get back in there and do another take. The inspiration was early aughts pop punk. F would lay down a track, then hop back in the engineering booth, listen, say, I want to add a harmony. Or, let's double those vocals. There's about 80,000 causes to care about and nothing's getting done. It was amazing to watch them work. <laughs> this is a pivotal moment for FC. They're about to graduate from Northeastern with a degree in music industry and communications. A lot has changed for them in college. They came out as non-binary. They put out their first EP almost a year ago, and they're working on new music now, which they're releasing as singles. They told me they're more comfortable in their skin than they used to be. And I think that translates into music that's becoming more playful and free.
If you'd like to see photos and Amelia's full write-up on FC, go to WBUR.org. Everything we need And we'll dream Have a sleep Never fall beyond this vision We were so clearly Outlined in the skyline And those four reason I love you like a dream I had But night and yes This season Do you remember me? We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with culinary and pastry certificate and diploma programs for aspiring chefs. CambridgeCulinary.com or on their app. And Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900.